We've been walking through a new section of Matthew. We started last week with Lee where Jesus is going around and proclaiming parables. These big, long parables. We've just ended in chapter 12. We had been walking through this longer section of those who should be accepting Jesus as their Messiah. The ones that you would expect to say, here's the one we've been waiting for. They're the ones that are actually rejecting him and saying, no thanks. And as the people who should be accepting him reject him, Jesus begins to reveal his true family. And so we see this contrast between those who don't know Jesus but should and those who you wouldn't expect to follow him who are actually the ones with ears to hear. And then we transitioned into this section of parables where parables, as, as Lee gave us a definition last week, are, are these sorts of provocative illustrations uh, or the old classic definition, it's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning where Jesus is coming and saying, okay, here's what the kingdom of heaven is like. Jesus shows up, as we've seen throughout Matthew, and he's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God. And so over and over and over again, we see him saying the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is like this, or the kingdom of heaven may be compared to this. What he's doing is unfolding the revelation of what the kingdom of God is like to a mixed audience. There's those who don't have the ears to hear, so they'll hear the parable and they'll go away just as deaf. And then those who do have the ears to hear where they hear the parables and see the hidden mysteries of the kingdom that have been stored up with God from before the foundation of the world revealed to him. He who has ears to hear, let him hear, not just a throwaway line saying, what all history has been waiting for is here coming out of my mouth, the revealed mysteries of the kingdom. If you have ears to hear, listen up. That's what he's doing in the parables. So we are taking bigger chunks. It just didn't make sense to us to me to preach uh, on seeds, wheat, and weeds, and then preach something else and preach something else. And then someone a month from now being like, remember a month ago, here's what all that meant. So we're putting it all together. I don't know if it'll be 90 seconds of verse, but we'll move more briskly. We'll see today that all these, we're going to look at three parables, weed and wheat, and then mustard seeds and leaven. So if you've joined the sourdough cult, you're like, yes, finally, something that speaks to me, right? All of these parables have one unifying theme, that is growth, kingdom growth. So we'll look at these a little bit out of order, similar to last week. I'll look at the parable of the weeds and then we'll take the explanation of verse 36 as one section. Then we'll look at mustard seed and leaven. But we'll look at three things under this idea of growth, the way the kingdom grows. Number one, the destination of growth, the nature of growth. What is it like? And the God of growth. Destination of growth, the nature of growth and the God of growth. So let's look at this first one. We'll talk through it, parable, and then we'll look at verse 36, but start in verse 24. He, Jesus, put another parable before them. So he's with the mixed crowd, his disciples and then others who are coming to listen to him. And he says this, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in the field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared 
also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in the field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to them, said to him, Did you want us to go and gather them? He said, No, lest the weeds, with the weeds, you root out the wheat along with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first, bind them in bundles to be burned, and gather the wheat into my barn. So we see in this long story another seed soil themed parable, just like last week. We see a man goes out into a field, sows good seed, and then goes away. And while his men were sleeping, an enemy comes and sows a bunch of weed seeds, right? Which I think is what dandelions do. It's a fun thing, but it just messes up your yard. Kids love it. Adults hate it. So what's happening here is back in Jesus' day, your, your field, your harvest, your crop was your primary source of livelihood. And so often, if you could, if you, if you could afford it, you would have hired servants or maybe slaves who would go and protect your field, to make sure people don't come in and steal your crop. And so notice this master's uh, hired workers, his servants are sleeping and this crafty enemy comes in, sows weeds among the fields. And then as the wheat begins to grow up, as it begins to flourish, the weeds that were sown begin to grow up with them. And uh, most of the commentators will point to the weed that everyone would have been thinking of in Jesus' day was this weed called darnel. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but it was an, an enemy of every uh, Israeli farmer because it looked just like wheat. So when they're growing up together, you don't notice that it's there until it begins to bear grain. And then you would notice, okay, this is real wheat bearing grain. And these are weeds that are all around. And the darnel, the weeds, roots would grow down and wrap around uh, the roots of the wheat. And so if you tried to get rid of the weeds, you would damage the wheat as well. So they have to be there together. And so we see the master says, as the wheat grows up and you begin to notice the weeds, the men see it, they say, should we pull it up? Master says, no, let them grow up. And then when harvest time comes, we'll gather the weeds, throw them into the fire, and then we will gather the rest of the wheat into my barn. So last week, uh, Lee pointed out uh, Carl's immaculate yard which I don't know if he just looked out and his little ring camera caught a bunch of you driving by this week because you just had to see it, right? It's just glistening with nothing but weedless greenery, right? Now, if you drive a little bit down the street to my yard, you'll see tons of weeds, tons. And the reason for the difference is because I'm attempting to be biblical, right? It's, you don't pull up the weeds until the end of time, until the harvest time, right? So just notice the levels of godliness as you look at our yards. Okay, that's obviously not, Jesus isn't giving you an agricultural lesson, so what does he mean? And luckily, you have an unbelievably clear explanation in verse 37. So Jesus tells this parable, tells some other parables. Matthew comments on how he speaks in parables. And then the disciples come to him in verse 36 and ask for an explanation. So skip down to verse 36. Then he, Jesus, left the crowds... So he's going with just his disciples, goes into a house and his disciples came and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And Jesus says this, notice how, how clear this is. Jesus answered them, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed are the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. 
the, the enemy who sowed them is the devil, the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels, right? And so you're like, why don't you do that with like all of them, Jesus? It would be really helpful for us. We're curious, and then all of a sudden, boom. Okay, so he gives uh, the explanation of what each element of the parable are. So the first thing we see is the sower is Jesus. It's the son of man, and the good seed that he has sown are the sons and the daughters of the kingdom, his true family, the saints, Christians, disciples of Jesus. One of the main themes we saw last week as the sower sowed seeds among the soils is the absolute sovereignty of God over salvation. And we see this same theme here. Jesus scattering, Jesus choosing and placing his people in the world. And then as he goes away after he's sown the sons and daughters of the kingdom, the devil shows up and he sows his own sons and daughters in the world while the men are sleeping. So I want you to notice, don't blow by the absolute craftiness, the slipperiness, the snake-likeness of the enemy. The surest way for you to fall into sin is to assume the enemy is dormant, lazy, to assume that the prowling lion looking for someone to devour is a cat. In the fourth chapter of Genesis, we see the first great temptation after Genesis 3 where Cain is angry with his brother and God shows up and God gives us a little illustration on what sin is like. Its desire is for you. It's crouching at your door and you need to master it. Notice the craftiness here. The men can't stop him. He waits until they're sleeping. He waits until the weakest moment. He comes in, he sows seed. And then now there is weeds that will grow up among the wheat. So Jesus is pointing out here the reality of the field, which he says is the world, is there will be in this field of the world a continual battle between the kingdom of God, the children of the kingdom of God, and the children of the evil one. So if you remember, again, last week's teaching, uh, this is in a sense filling in the picture that we got from last week. So last week, Lee taught on how uh, the sower goes and sows seed and four different types of soils. One, there's the path that the enemy comes and just snatches up. It doesn't take any root. Then there's the rocky place, the shallow soil that the roots go and it sprouts up really quickly and it looks very exciting, but then the sun scorches it and its roots don't go deep enough. So it quickly withers away. There's a third soil where there's a bunch of thorns. So as the uh, crop grows up, the thorns grow up and begin to choke it out. And then there's the good soil. There's the good soil where the shoots sprout up and begin to bear fruit. And so you may be tempted to think, if I'm in the good soil, life's great, right? No thorns, no rocks, no birds plucking up the seeds. Life's good. I'm just over here bearing fruit. And so Jesus filling in the story a little bit here. There's not going to be thorns, but there are going to be weeds. Your salvation isn't going to be snuffed out or plucked away or choked out, but there are going to be weeds around you, sons of the evil one continually trying to frustrate you, to oppose all the efforts of the kingdom of God, trying to spoil the advancement of the gospel. So when Jesus shows up, think way back, 
years ago when we were in like Matthew 4, right? Jesus shows up and he's bringing about the kingdom. He's the king of the kingdom. He says the kingdom is at hand. As he's declaring the gospel of the kingdom, he's bringing about right now. And what he's showing here is the arrival of the kingdom of God does not mean all evil and all oppression will immediately be eradicated. Rather, we live in this in-between time from Jesus' first arrival and his second coming, a time that we're in right now, a time that scholars will typically call the already and not yet, or the now and not yet. The kingdom is here now, but we're in this in-between battle time. The final days have not yet come where all sin will be put away and all enemies will be defeated at his second coming. We haven't gotten to that yet. And so Jesus is laying this out for us. Yes, there will be wheat in the good soil, but there will also be weeds and a battle against this kingdom that we live in right now. So one uh, typical debate that happens uh, with this passage is, is a lot of people throughout church history have debated, is this talking about just how the kingdom goes out in the world? Meaning there's the kingdom of God and then just the kingdom of the enemy and they're always going to be fighting. Or is this specifically talking about the church? And big names like Augustine and John Calvin highlighted, they think this is about the church. Jesus is in a sense saying, there's always going to be believers and unbelievers within the church. It's kind of a proof text for why we should do infant baptism, right? Even if we know uh, babies that we dunk have, or I guess sprinkle, we don't dunk babies uh, or sprinkle babies here. But, uh, we, you know, yes, they don't, haven't proclaimed faith yet, but look, weeds and wheat are gonna grow up together. Uh, the problem with that is Jesus is really, really clear on what the field is. Verse 38, the field is the world. Jesus is not really specifically talking about the devil's attempts to overwhelm the church. Will the enemy attempt to overwhelm the church? Absolutely, but both within the church and outside the church. So Lee pointed out, as we were talking about Calvinism last week, we don't want you to just follow John Calvin, we want you to follow the Bible. So look, here's an example, John Calvin's wrong. You heard it here first, at least one place that we found, don't dunk babies, wait until they profess faith, uh, which will be later when they can speak. So we see uh, essentially uh, that's drawing it a bit too narrow. What Jesus is laying out here is as the kingdom of God advances, so will all opposition to that kingdom. And it will happen until the end. It will happen until the harvest, which is the end of the age. Look at verse 40. And just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The son of man will send his angels and they will gather out of the kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreaking and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So we're in this in-between battle time where weeds grow up alongside the wheat of the kingdom of God, but there will come a day, the end of days when that battle ceases. And God sends forth his angels. Everything that's confusing and frustrating and painful will be made plain and will be removed. The wheat and the weeds will be separated. And notice there's two and only two destinations. The furnace and the barn. The kingdom. The furnace, all lawbreakers and sin, 
everyone who opposes Jesus' kingdom will be gathered and thrown into the fire in a place of weeping and continual misery. And then when the battle is done and all pain and all confusion has been removed and all tears wiped away, all the righteous will be gathered as well. And the children will come into the kingdom of their father where they will shine like the sun. Notice the glory of getting into the barn isn't just that you avoided burning as if the greatest thing about being a child of the kingdom is that you avoid the punishment. The glory is as you enter into the presence of your father, your face begins to beam. There's joy in the kingdom. So there's a summary. We're in this in-between time, this difficulty where there's just gonna be this battle before the end of days, but the second coming is coming, a day when the battle ends, the final judgment comes, enemies will be judged in the fiery furnace, and then we will spend eternity with our king in glory with him. And so the question we need to ask ourselves, I think, in reflecting on this is, why does Jesus give us this parable? Why does Jesus take so much time to give us this parable? Is it just for more information? I know you've been curious. I know you guys love debating end time stuff, so let me just lay it out for you. Is that why he's doing it? I know you guys are gonna really have a day with Revelation and Waco's gonna, gonna, gonna go a little crazy in the 90s, but here, I'll lay it out for you. I'll just give you more information. Is that why? Does Jesus just wanna, for fun, let us, okay, that's how it's gonna go. We'll go about our business. No, of course not. Jesus here is revealing the hidden mystery of the kingdom so that you will be able to navigate this difficult life confidently, filled with hope, knowing how it will all end, knowing ultimate reality. Jesus knows this world is broken. He knows this world is very difficult. He knows this world is filled with sin and death and frustration and cancer and murder and confusion. And he's showing up here not just to say, here's more truth for you to store away but he's showing up as your Messiah saying, I want you navigating all that painful mess with a peace that surpasses all understanding. I wanna let you know how it goes and I wanna let you know how it ends so that when it's going badly, you might grip tightly these promises. So we see three things that I think he wants us to see here. How do we navigate this difficult world? Proper expectations, hope in the midst of confusion, and then with a set destination. So let's look at this first. Proper expectations. He lets you know the enemy comes and he's gonna sow weeds in the field. So that's gonna grow up along the wheat. It's gonna seek to destroy the wheat. And so here's very plainly, this will solve a lot of angst and frustration and perhaps cynicism in your heart. Stop expecting the unchristian world to behave Christianly. Stop getting upset at our president's tweets. Stop getting unthinkably frustrated 
when Target does something ridiculous as if you expected them not to, or when Disney does something as if they've left the Apostles' Creed that was in their constitution and bylaws, right? Expect the sinful, wicked world to behave as they are sons of the evil one. How are you meant to react, sons and daughters of the kingdom, when you see the wicked world behaving wickedly? We've already seen it. The last time Jesus really took time to lay out the kingdom of God for us in the Sermon on the Mount. When they act foolishly, when they hate you, when they come after you, when they actually persecute you, not just when you see frustrating tweets, how do you react? How does our king tell us we are to react mocking, scoffing, seeing red frustration, or love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Is that your reaction when the weeds act like weeds? When you see weeds in the world, do you scoff? Do you mock their morality? as if they were gonna live any other way as they say, curse Jesus, he's not my king? Or are you moved as the wheat growing up alongside the weeds to love, to care, to pray to the one giving them breath that they might see the foolishness of their ways? Do you see the radical difference there? One, you'll actually live as sons and daughters of the kingdom are meant to. Two, you'll save yourself so much unnecessary frustration so much unnecessary angst at the moral deterioration of our world. It's going to deteriorate until the second coming. Jesus wants you to navigate this world sober. That as the world is blind, you see. As the world is confused, you see. As the world is terrified, you have a peace that surpasses all understanding because our king is on the throne. None of this catches him by surprise and he's gonna come end it one day. And he's gonna take away all the bad and he's gonna bring us into the barn. That's the first, have proper expectations. Live in such a way that your life just declares, my hope is not in this world. My hope is in the next. Proper expectations to hope in confusion. One of the things that we've said is the weeds and the wheats look really similar. There's just this, I don't really know how to work this out. There's this confusion. There's just this constant fear of it being spoiled. I imagine the men going to their master in this parable think there's weeds everywhere. Our good crop is spoiled. What are we supposed to do? And there's this fear that the whole world is going to hell in a handbasket. And here again, your king wants you to see one day I'll separate it. I'll deal with all this confusing frustration. I'll remove everything that's painful and I will heal everything that is broken. Your greatest pain that you're walking through right now, the most difficult thing you're walking through right now, the greatest misery you're facing right now will one day be removed. I don't know how, you don't know how, but it will be. Wrap your fingers around that hope. All of my favorite sports now are in Europe. So I'm not a very good Texan. Uh, I don't know if the Cowboys are good. I don't care anymore. Uh, I was born like when they were good and then they were like, Jared's here. We'll stop being good for 30 years. Uh, sorry, 
I mean, that's true, so you guys shouldn't be upset. Again, proper expectations. Um, so uh, because all my favorite sports are not here, are far away, they typically happen and I have to record them. Oftentimes I'm here preaching to you when Messi is doing awesome stuff. Uh, so what happens every now and then is you guys uh, ruin it for me. You'll come up and you'll say, did you see Messi score a hat trick? And I say, no, it doesn't surprise me because he just exudes perfection, but uh, no, but I'll go watch it later. And so I'll go home and watch the spoiled game. And what will often happen is uh, Messi's team will be losing badly. Another team will score, another team will score again. And in those moments, you know what I do? I don't say, man, this is terrible. I'm so frustrated. I say, okay, he pulls them out of this hole that they're now in. How do they get out of this, right? The mistakes themselves make me almost laugh. Why? Because I know the end. I know how it ends. And here Jesus is trying to show you, I'm telling you how it ends. All this pain I will one day make untrue. You win at the end of the day. Worst case scenario for you is glory with the king. Your face shining with the king. Before Claudia and I went to seminary in Charlotte, I worked very briefly as a high school chaplain, which means the majority of my job was 15-year-olds who had just been dumped by their girlfriends being very sad in my office. Uh, and every single time, you know, I just got in the habit of like, hey man, I know it seems like life is over. I can promise you. I don't know how, but it does get better than this. It also gets a lot worse than this, but I didn't tell them that part. But uh, it does get better than this. I don't know how, but you're almost certainly going to find a spouse one day that you're going to marry and be so thankful that what's-her-face dumped you your freshman year, right? I don't know how, but it gets better. And here Jesus is saying, I do know how it gets better because I'm the one that's going to make it better. I'm telling you this now. So in all that pain and misery and confusion and difficulty stream into your reality, you know, ultimate reality. One day he will wipe away these tears. One day he's going to make it all go away. And then lastly, so proper expectations, hope in pain. And then thirdly, lastly, most importantly, he gives us a destination to set our eyes on. The most important thing for you navigating today and tomorrow, and as long as your heart keeps beating, is fixing your eyes on your eternity, on the destination, on the barn. Jesus is showing you, yes, all this is happening, but I'm getting you here one day. Yes, all this bad stuff will go away, but one day I will dance in the streets of the king's city. One day as I behold his face, my face will shine. One day I won't see in faith, my faith will be turned to sight. He won't just take away the bad, he will fill my heart with unimaginable, infinite joy. You're meant to set your eyes on that now to navigate this world until you get there. Richard Baxter, who is a famous Puritan, wrote a whole book on meditation called The Saint's Everlasting Rest. And his main point in the whole book was, in order to navigate, it was this point, in order to navigate this life, you need to set your eyes on the next life. He says this, a heavenly mind, someone thinking about the barn, 
someone thinking about the, the kingdom of the Father that we will one day be brought into. A heavenly mind is a joyful mind. It is the nearest and truest way to live a life of true comfort. Can a man be at a fire and not be warmed or in the sunshine and not have light? Can your heart be in heaven and not have comfort? On the other hand, what could make such a frozen, uncomfortable Christian, but living as far as they do from heaven? Oh, Christian, get above. Believe it, that region is warmer than this below. You set your mind on things below, your heart will go, grow cold You'll think about nothing but your own efforts and you'll be filled with nothing but the inability to accomplish all that you want to accomplish. But set your mind on the things above. You'll set your mind on him and you'll see infinite love and power and joy that came and bought you and secured you and says, no one snatches you from my hand. One day I will bring you into the barn. I will bring you into the kingdom of my father. That's how you're meant to navigate the difficulty of being surrounded by weeds. Don't believe me? We have an example in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul. He writes the majority of the New Testament. The book of Acts is largely filled with him going throughout the known world and preaching the gospel, and he suffers bad. No one in this room has endured 1% of Paul's suffering. He gets shipwrecked apparently multiple times. He gets beaten all the time. He's in danger with his family. He's in danger with his friends. He's in danger with his enemies. He has the constant angst of the churches that he's planted being swept away by heresy, burning in his heart. And how does he navigate all of that difficulty? He tells us in Romans 8, I consider that suffering in this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. How does Paul navigate his best friends abandoning him and in his greatest time of need? How does he navigate churches that he planted slandering him? How does he navigate actually having his beat or back opened up by whips? His eyes are set on the barn, on the glory that is waiting. That's what your Messiah is coming here to give you. Set your eyes on the destination. Hebrews 11, we have this great chapter summarizing all the heroes of the Old Testament that we call the Hall of Faith. And it's just all these summaries of how they served the Lord and obeyed the Lord and they looked forward in faith. And then a lot of them die terribly, right? They suffer greatly. And then Hebrews 12, the next chapter opens up. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, all these people who suffered bad looking forward in faith, let us run this race with endurance, laying aside every sin and weight, doing what? Where are our eyes as we run this race with endurance? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. In case you didn't believe my Paul example, there's a Hebrews example. Navigate this weed-filled, difficult world with your eyes fixed on the kingdom that is to come in full. On the feast you will have at the king's table on the joy unspeakable that will be yours when you see his face and your face shines like the sun. As the kingdom grows, set your eyes on the destinations. That's the first 
thing. We're doing great on time. 90 seconds of verse. Okay. So Jesus firstly is showing us, okay, how does the kingdom grow? Here's the journey of growth and the destination. Next, he's going to zoom in with mustard seeds and leaven and show us a bit about the nature of growth. How does the kingdom grow in particular? So look at verse 31. We'll look at mustard seeds first. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. So mustard seeds in Jesus' day uh, were the smallest of all cultivated seeds, millimeter and a half, so real small. But when you plant it, it could grow up to 12 feet. And then Jesus, to make his point, even exaggerates it a bit and says, it doesn't just grow to a tall plant, it becomes a tree that is so big, the birds come and make their nests in it. So what's he saying about how the kingdom grows, the nature of the kingdom growing or gospel growth, if you will. At first, the kingdom looks small and looks insignificant but eventually it will grow to the largest of all kingdoms and it will be eventually irresistible. It looks small, tiny, puny, pathetic, but it will eventually grow to dwarf Rome or China or America or whoever would boast in their might. It will be the greatest of all kingdoms and it will eventually be irresistible. The birds will come in, it will captivate everybody. Which, think about, how does the kingdom of God start? A homeless rabbi has a three-year ministry. I've been at Parkway four years to give you just a sense of the, the quickness of Jesus's ministry. A homeless rabbi calls some uneducated fishermen. Very unimpressive. That's not Alexander the Great amassing a great army and going conquering the known world. A homeless rabbi calls some uneducated fishermen and says, go tell the whole world about salvation that is in me. And here we are 2,000 years later in McKinney, Texas, preaching the gospel that uneducated Peter first preached in Acts 2. The mustard seed has grown and it will keep growing. There will come a day where not just 200 people in McKinney, but every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, as we see in Revelation 7, a great multitude that no one could number will stand and praise the living God. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. We're not there yet, but the mustard seed has grown. It looks small and insignificant. It becomes the largest and it becomes irresistible. And then Jesus gives us our sourdough example next, verse 33. And he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Okay, so three measures, apparently, commentators tell me, my wife makes a sourdough in our house. Uh, I don't, so I don't, didn't know anything naturally. So uh, three measures is a lot feed about 100 people, small village. And leaven was a little piece of last week's dough that you would put in the middle so that it would grow. And here we see it's hidden, small, looks overwhelmed by the rest of the dough, but eventually will overtake this giant amount. And similarly with the kingdom, it is often tiny, hidden, 
almost unnoticeable, but eventually it will grow until it overtakes and transforms everything that it touches. Though starting small, it will grow in an irresistible way and eventually overwhelm everything. It will eventually be inevitable. Growth is inevitable within the kingdom. There's a a 19th century evangelist named G. Campbell Morgan who used to tell a story of one day he was walking through a graveyard in Italy and he saw this uh, giant uh, marble slab that was placed on top of a grave and it had actually been split. It had an oak tree growing up right in the middle of it and it had split the marble slab and fallen to either side. And he said, what must have happened is when they were burying that person who had this just huge slab put on top, an acorn must have fell into the grave and somehow grew and eventually grew and grew and grew and eventually split that giant marble slab. So you think, tiny little acorn, giant marble slab, which one wins? And the answer is the acorn, every time. Similarly here, Jesus is saying, with the kingdom, if that's what an acorn can do, how much more the kingdom of God, how much more the spirit of the living God can grow? When you come to Jesus, when you place faith in Jesus, the gospel tells us the spirit of the living God comes to dwell in your heart. You're justified, you're declared righteous, and the spirit comes and makes his dwelling in your heart. And then the rest of this life is inevitable growth where you begin to bear the fruit of the spirit. You begin to be conformed into Jesus's image. You begin to look more like Jesus. And then you will die or he'll return. We don't know yet uh, which one of those will happen first. And one day you will be glorified. First John 3, one day we will be like him when we see him as he is. So similar with the kingdom, every knee bowing, being totally victorious. So in your soul, the good work that has started now will be finished. You'll be glorified. Every single stain of sin will be Removed as the kingdom, the gospel growth eventually overwhelms you because it is inevitable. It will keep growing until it has totally transformed everything that it has touched. And so because of that reality, because of how the kingdom of God grows, I want to just give us three quick things. I want to give you an encouragement. I want to give you an exhortation. And then I want to give you a direction for growth. Number one, I want to give you an encouragement. Don't be discouraged when you don't see growth, either in yourself or in others. There may be some of that you're pouring into and they keep living foolishly or it just seems like your words are going over their head. It is often hidden, the growth. Or in yourself, if you just think, I just, I read my Bible and I pray and I just don't see anything. I seem just as mad as before and I, see just, I seem just as frustrated and God seems just as distant. It's easy to grow frustrated. I'll say to you, one, your hunger there for growth is evidence that God is growing you. Two, uh, I'll give you an example of, there's 9,000 babies here. If you're new here, you're like, there's a lot of babies. So one of the things you'll hear happening before service and after service is these words, oh my goodness, he or she has gotten so big, right? That's our go-to line. I said that to someone this morning. Uh, and so what are we saying? It's, it's been a week and babies grow like crazy. And so baby a week ago to baby now looks different, much less a month, much less two months. It looks like different humans every time you see them. But if you just sit there and stare at the baby, it's been 10 minutes, looks the same. 
What's going on? It's been an hour. This hair looks the same length, right? Is it not growing? No, that's how growth happens. We always say, oh, they grow up so fast. It does. When you look backwards, you actually see how much growth has happened, but it's slow. It's often hidden, but it is inevitable. Every giant redwood started off as a seed. Every massive oak tree started off as an acorn, so it will be with you. So it will be with anyone who has the seed of the gospel, the seed of the kingdom planted in their hearts. You may be petrified to go tell your neighbor about Jesus. It may be like your nightmare. Okay, can someone else with the gift of evangelism do all that? Because I, I just never want to open my mouth and tell anyone about Jesus because what if I say it wrong? Or what if they call me dumb? Or just the thought of talking to a stranger is just paralyzing. That may be you right now. And the Spirit is going to work in your heart to where one day you will see the actual gospel transform someone's heart from death to life. That's how the Spirit works. His fruit, you can't stop Him bearing the fruit. There are men in this room that will eventually be elders of this church and lead this church because the Spirit of God is going to refine your character and grow you and you're going to fall in love with your Savior and you're going to long for everyone else in this church to know how good he is and so you're going to start discipling people and eventually you'll help lead this church. There may be people in this room who the growth of the gospel in your heart begins to burden you so much for nations and peoples that have never heard of this king that you leave this room and you go there to tell them. That is how the gospel grows. So don't be discouraged. Jesus is showing you it's slow, it's often hidden, but it is pervasive to encourage you. There's the encouragement. The second is an exhortation. Because growth is inevitable, you need to ask yourself, am I growing? Do I hate sin more than I did a year ago? Do I have a greater longing, a hunger and thirst for righteousness than I did a year ago? Can I say like the psalmist, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul thirsts after you, O God? Are you growing in boldness to proclaim the gospel? Are you growing in the desire to see other people know him? And are you growing in your own love for Jesus and how wonderful he is and how glorious he is? Because if Jesus is telling the truth here, you should be. It may be slow, that's why we need to be encouraged, but there is no such thing as coasting in the Christian life. Your conversion is not an arrival, it's the beginning of your journey of growth. Growth is inevitable. So are you growing? And then thirdly, a direction because it is inevitable. Let me just tell you how you, uh, as my pastor growing up said, how you get under the fountain of God's grace. How do you put yourself in the way of the Spirit's growth? It's not by accumulating more knowledge or by accumulating kind of abstract virtues. It is by growing deeper into the God that you already have. It is simply falling more in love with Jesus. Your growth is just you being conformed into his image. You don't grow just, I'm, I'm a brilliant theologian now. I went to seminary and therefore this is ginormous and I'm here to cascade, you know, cast my wisdom down from on high. Rather, 
learning the scriptures should lead to falling in love with the God of the scriptures. You studying theology should make you more patient with your kids. If it's not, it's not the Spirit's growth. It's not the fruit of the Spirit that's actually being born. Again, so on your wedding day, if you're married, if not, just stick with my analogy. On your wedding day, you see you know, your wife coming down the aisle or if you're the wife walking down the aisle, did you say, we're married? Okay, marriage is check, done. What's next, right? We've got marriage done. No, you say now that we've been brought into this relationship together, the journey of searching the depths of one another's hearts has begun. And it's the same with Jesus. Your growth is to come to him at your conversion and say, my life is yours, your life is mine. I'm going to spend not just the rest of this life, but the next life searching the infinite depths of this inexhaustible source of joy. In C.S. Lewis's uh, third book in the Chronicles of Narnia, Prince Caspian, maybe the second book, uh, there's this story where Lucy, one of the little girls, the children that was in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, comes and sees Aslan again. It's been a year since she's been in Narnia, and she sees Aslan, the lion that is Jesus in the story. And she says, Aslan, you're bigger. And he says, that's because you're older. And she says, not because you actually are. And he says, no, you'll find the older you get, the bigger I'll seem. And so if the Spirit is convicting you, I need to grow. Don't sprint to, I need to be smarter about God. And don't sprint to, I just need to muster up the holiness efforts. Sprint to him. Because the greatest evidence that you're growing, that the Spirit is growing you, is Jesus is so much bigger to you. And so much more Wonderful, And you sprint to him when you sin because you know his merciful arms are opened and his hands have nail scars for you. So sprint to him. That's the direction. So that's kingdom growth. It's small. It's hidden. It's unimpressive. But then it will grow. It will be large. The largest of all kingdoms, it's inevitable, it's irresistible. And then lastly, the last thing we'll look at, right in the middle of all these parables, Matthew gives us another one of his comments about how Jesus is fulfilling an Old Testament prophecy. And understanding this is actually the key to the whole passage. Look at verse 34. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. So Matthew's done this a lot. One of the things we talked about when we began this book was uh, the Old Testament is like a, is actually, B.B. Warfield gives us an analogy. An Old Testament is like a room filled with treasures that's dimly lit. And the New Testament, or in particular Matthew, is going to turn the lights on. So you see all the treasures clearly, and you see all the treasures are fulfilled in Jesus. And so all throughout Matthew, we've seen this over and over and over again. This was to fulfill this promise, and this was to fulfill this promise. And so here we have Psalm 78, which is a a promise that the Messiah would come. He would speak in parables, and as he does so, he would reveal all the hidden mysteries of God and in so doing, bring about God's salvation. And the psalmist actually highlights the Exodus and all God's salvation works. And so Matthew is saying, this is what Jesus is doing. He's here, he's speaking in parables, not just to do something that checks, you know, the, the prophecy bingo card, but to reveal what has been hidden 
in God from before the foundation of the world. And here's why this is so important to understand. If we view Jesus just as another prophet, just as another person who hears from God and just has that kind of special message from God, he's just a messenger repeating what God says, we will totally misunderstand everything that comes out of his mouth. But in order to understand what Jesus is here to do in establishing his kingdom, in order to understand what he's doing in these parables is to see he's not just another messenger. Rather, he is the message himself. He isn't a prophet pointing to a far off reality over there. He says, I'm here and everywhere I go, the kingdom goes. Why? Because he is the king of the kingdom. Notice Jesus doesn't say, thus says the Lord. He says, I say to you. Hebrews 1, highlighting this reality. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So Old Testament, God sends messengers. He sends Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah, go say to the people, thus says the Lord. So they hear you and know that God has sent you a message But in these last days, how has he spoken to us? How has God spoken to us? By his son, whom whom he appointed as the heir of all things and through whom he created the world. So Matthew here isn't just saying another Messiah checkbox for Jesus. He's saying, if you want to understand the mysteries of the kingdom being unfolded here in parables, you need to look at the one speaking the one who hasn't just been told the mysteries from God, but the eternal son of God in whom the mysteries have been hidden and he himself has come to reveal them. The one who doesn't just tell you about the kingdom, but who is the king of the kingdom. The one who notice in the story is the sower, is the one who puts the sons and daughters of the kingdom here in the world, his world in the world that he has created. Notice he's not just the king and the sower and it's his world, he's the final judge. He's the one that takes away the weeds and brings his people in. He's the leaven. He doesn't just put a magic spell on you that causes you to grow. What does Hebrews 12 call him? He's the founder and he's the perfecter of your faith. Philippians 1, he who started a good work in you will be faithful to finish it. He doesn't save you and say, it's up to you, grow. He says, I bring in my sheep. I've come to call them by name. I have them right here and no one snatches them from my hand. He's the one who puts his spirit in you. And he's the one that in order to get you in the barn, in order to get you in the kingdom is going to go to the cross and he is going to be bound and burned so that you might get in the barn. You should be confused in this parable because you should know I am not wheat. My nature my sinful nature, I'm the weeds. Isn't that what Ephesians 2 tells us? We are all by nature children of wrath, sons of disobedience. But so that you wouldn't be bound and thrown into the furnace, he was bound on the cross and thrown into the furnace to get you in the barn. His face was spit on and mocked and punched so that your face might Shine In order for you to be able to grow, he withered. He goes into the furnace 
and he doesn't stay there. He conquers the furnace. He's raised into a mighty tree for all to come nest in. He doesn't stay on the cross. He defeats death so that we might go into the barn. And so let's end with the same exhortation that Jesus ends. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. If you don't know this savior, if you don't have ears to hear, go to the only one who can make your deaf ears hear. Go to the only one who can make your eyes see. You can't muster up the hearing. You have to go to the sovereign God who opens deaf ears. And if you have ears to hear, if you are a Christian, don't live another second as if you're deaf. As if the hidden mysteries of the kingdom of the living God haven't been revealed to you. That's what's happening here. If you got called today to drive to Washington and go into the situation room, even if you don't like the president, you go get to sit in the situation room and you get to hear all the secrets of all the most dangerous situations in the world, would you just go to lunch after? Would you not tell anybody? Would you just go about your business? Cool experience. Got to hear about this war that's going to happen. or what? I don't know what happens in the situation room. Never been. And look at me, all those secrets will be in a presidential library somewhere one day and no one's gonna care. Do we care about JFK's assassination anymore? I mean, like the conspiracies of it, maybe a couple of us, I mean, this is Dallas, but no one's gonna care one day. Those mysteries will pass along, people are like, cool, I've, I've moved on, right? There's cat videos to watch on YouTube. You have the revealed mysteries from before the foundation of the world that have been revealed to you. You have ears to hear as the God of the gospel has come down and shown you them. So live in this weed-filled world with your eyes set on the barn, with your eyes set on the kingdom. Grow deeper in your love for the king, knowing one day your face will shine when you behold his wonderful face. Let's pray. Father, when your spirit convicts us, for me, the first thing I, I just think is, okay, I'll do better. Ironically, your spirit's conviction makes me immediately think in the most anti-gospel way. And so I imagine I'm not alone in that. I imagine uh, there's probably some false guilt. I know your enemy is crafty and he goes into the field and sows weeds. And so I, I pray rather than uh, him plucking up the good seed, I pray you would pluck up his false voice that we would not be driven to attempt better performances, but rather we'd be driven to your son who performs perfectly on our behalf. And that we might actually rest in him. And that we might actually have this otherworldly joy that only comes from him. We praise you, Father, that you have in him revealed these mysteries of the kingdom. And so I pray that they wouldn't be just a cool thing we could file away. I pray that they would be a present reality that we live in, that we would begin to live as your scriptures say, the sons and daughters of the king live hunger and thirsting for righteousness, knowing that you say you will be satisfied poor in spirit, looking to you for all of our riches. 
loving our enemy, praying for those who persecute us. As the world collapses around us, we stand in confidence knowing the best the world can do is kill the body, but they can't kill the soul. And even the body you will raise again one day in the glorious resurrection where we will be made like your son. And we will spend eternity with you in the kingdom of our father. We pray that that would be the reality that's always set on our eyes and we pray it in the name of the one who brings that reality to us, your son Jesus, amen.